Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Today, I'm here with Derek Canis, and I'm going to let Derek go on and introduce himself. So, Derek, who are you, and what is your condition? Hi, guys. I'm Derek, and um, I was diagnosed with AIDS back in 2001, and now work as an advocate for everyone worldwide that live with this condition daily. And what uh, what's the name of the organization? Uh, it's um, in the stigma is the name of the campaign, but there's a group under that called D-Rex Angels and Warriors, and they do all the walks and street team style stuff. Can you give us a little bit of a description of what AIDS is? AIDS stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome which is brought on by untreated HIV. So if you contract HIV, it is not a guarantee that you will get AIDS if you get on meds early and stay adherent to your meds. But nobody can contract AIDS. That's a big misconception is people think they can get AIDS. You don't. You get HIV and you develop, if untreated, into AIDS. Okay. That's what I always thought. I thought that HIV was one thing, and then I thought AIDS was something else until having talked to people who were living with HIV and hearing what you're describing to us now. Thank you for sharing that with us. No problem. So you said you were diagnosed in 2001, correct? Yes. Walk us through that. What was going on around that time? At that time, I had just um, come out of a third pacemaker replacement, and my initial health problem is a transposition of the great arteries, which was corrected in 1985, and I had multiple blood transfusions during that time, and after the third pacemaker transplant, I was having a really tough time breathing. And I went to a pulmonologist, and the first thing he asked me was, "Why are you so short?" Real, and real my quick. Reaction was real quick. Nice what's to meet you too, Doc? <laughs> what's a uh, pol- pulmonologist? What is that? Bronchial. Okay. Pulmonology. Yes, for lungs. Okay, got lung it. Disorders, and um, he immediately noticed there was something off because I was 15 years old and four foot tall and 55 pounds and my entire life I always went through being told I would be small because of my heart which I found out was incorrect so he ran me through tests like crazy and everything came back negative and he eventually sent me to the University of Florida which I wasn't happy about because I'm a Georgia Bulldog and the last place I want to go is to Gator Country. Oh, yeah. I see the Georgia Bulldog flag right behind you. Did you sit there on purpose yeah. just to show me, or is that just everywhere in your house? <laughs> That's just everywhere. <laughs> All right, so they send you to Florida, and what's happening in Florida? I started going to an endocrinologist for human growth hormone injections that, um, if you remember back around the early 2000s, a lot of sports stars got suspended for using the same thing 
and it was human growth hormone, which worked really well. I gained 50 plus pounds and gained a foot in height to five foot now and a hundred pounds, which was a big increase for me. But my case was being studied by students at the college because my doctor was the department head of immunology. So basically what they would do would be they would take um, my medical records and black out my name and any personal info and give those charts to students and say, if this presents, what do you do? Where do you go? And one student in the class said he had a lot of blood transfusions, 15 to be exact, in early 1985. And there's nowhere in here does it say that he ever had an HIV test. So with sheer luck of a student noticing that, that I submitted to an HIV test, which ended up coming back positive, and I found I was diagnosed with AIDS because when the HIV virus left untreated that long, it should have killed me. And I was within months of death at that point. And luckily it was found, I was diagnosed and had really good doctors that took really good care of me and they rebuilt uh, an immune system that was destroyed. I had more of the virus in my blood than anything else and knocked it all the way down to undetectable, which is the healthiest I can ever get to with the virus. Yeah. Now, one question real quick. You said that the HIV would have killed you had it continued to go untreated. I was under the impression that HIV wouldn't kill you. It would be something like you getting sick after having uh, HIV untreated. I was diagnosed with AIDS. My HIV was left untreated for so long that I transformed from that into an AIDS diagnosis. Got it. Because my health had gotten so bad. So I always say I'm an AIDS patient because I was diagnosed with that and I have all the physical effects of that. Like it put a curve in my spine. It stopped me from growing. I mean, it caused problems across the board that nobody really talks about because most people contract the virus. They're already grown. There aren't many cases where somebody went 16 years and then found out about it. Yeah, and there's no way to determine how long you got it. Like, which of those blood transfusions was the one that had given you HIV, which went untreated and then developed into AIDS, correct? That's true. And the saddest part of the story is all the blood transfusions were cut, which means I didn't get a full blood transfusion because a baby doesn't is not sized enough to take a whole blood transfusion. So I wasn't the only one on that floor in that ward that could have possibly contracted the virus. And I've never been able to track down anybody else, but I know there were others. There had to have been. Okay. You're taking the human growth hormone, and it's working for you. Now, you were given that before your AIDS diagnosis. Is that right? Yes. All right. Now we're at a place where... The student discovers that you've never been treated or tested for HIV. Now it's AIDS. So you're diagnosed with AIDS. What is your response to that? How do they deliver the news? They um, 
called and told me it was two weeks later. After and after after the test, okay. I had to wait two weeks to go back. And we got a phone call, and they said bring extra family. So I kind of knew before I even got to the hospital it wasn't going to be the best of news. But I was expecting something along the line of it came back negative, we got to do more testing, you know, that. I wasn't expecting what I got, and that whole day is just kind of a blur. I don't remember much of it. They put us all in one little waiting room, and they pulled people out one by one and left me and my grandfather. Finally, I was called back, and I just remember walking into a room. Nobody really had to tell me. The rest of the day just became background noise. Like, I met a lot of people that day. But I had no clue what they said. It was just walk, 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 you know. I had pretty much turned off. And then I was sent home because it took two weeks to build a strategy to even treat me because they had never seen a case like that. I had so many medical issues outside of the AIDS diagnosis that it, it was crazy. They had to put together a cardiology team, an endocrine team. I mean, I met more doctors than I ever wanted to meet within the next few weeks. Yeah. Were the other medical conditions as a result of having had HIV for so long untreated? Yeah, the curve in the spine is I had a lot of dental issues that also track back to that and I have arthritis real bad in my knees and hips and it all goes back to that being left untreated. Mm-hmm. It's basically like if somebody had a chisel on a block and they just every day nonstop hit it. I mean, even if you're treating the virus, it still had 16 years of just chiseling away and breaking stuff down. So all those transfusions that you received were as a baby. It's not like you got them repeatedly yes. throughout life. Okay, so I'm thinking that at some point in time over the years... You may have come into contact with it, but all of this was done as an infant. Yeah, this was in, uh, and right after open heart surgery, so. Oh yeah, we didn't even get to talk about that. It's crazy. So 16 years, like that, you know, you've already described the day as best you can, given that you blacked out out of all of that. So when you came back to after the realization that you were just diagnosed with AIDS, now what? You're 16 at this point in time? Yeah. All right. I was 16. Everything just kind of shattered, at least for me. And I kind of drew into myself really big and put headphones on and turned to music. But it was really, really angry music. Like, it wasn't anything, like, uplifting. It was... You were listening to, like, that old Eminem where he was just screaming and yelling. <laughs> yeah, and everything, my personality, everything was just shattered. And then I had to go back to a hospital and start treatment. And at that point, I had created a whole new persona. I had to because I 
felt like I had died, basically. And I'll always tell people, like, I have a creature in my mind that after I was diagnosed, went around and kind of cleaned up all the shattered parts, and it scooped up a lot of ego and a really twisted sense of humor and a little bit of charm, and that's what DREC is. And that's what everybody needs. Like, I put Derek away because I see that as everything broken. So I had to create a whole new thing around me, which is really just a wall. I put up to see if somebody who tried to jump over. Anybody that has jumped over has gone really not liked it when they saw what was behind it. Now, we're talking about the wall that's protecting people from finding out who you really are? Yeah. Got it. Now, real quick, I want to backtrack before we get to the reinventing yourself. All of these different teams of doctors had to come together and create a strategy that rebuilt your immune system. Talk to me a little bit about that. So what does it mean to rebuild an immune system? It was a lot of meds. (laughs) I was on 22 pills a day when I first started. 7, 11, 3, and 11, those were my med times. So I was every day, like every time I turned around, it was time to take meds. That went on for two years, I think it took before I got to undetectable. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty fast considering where I started. I started with zero immune system. I think I had four T-cells. Wow. So it did, it took a lot of work. It was a lot of nonstop work that you just have to put in to, and that's for anybody. Anybody dealing with any kind of health issues, it takes work. They don't just go away. Like you, you have to put forth the effort mm-hmm. into your health, and a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people undervalue their health. And don't realize how quick that can be taken away. That's true. There's a lot that's really interesting about your story. One of the main things is that we're talking about someone who's lived with HIV unknowingly until age 15, 16 years old, who all of a sudden just has AIDS and it's not even having been contracted sexually. So that's another thing that I want to get across here is how important getting tested is. I always thought, okay, if you're sexually active, you should get tested. But after having spoken to you, it's like, when would we have kids get tested for HIV or get tested, period? How would you, if you could look back and do anything different, what would it have been? You didn't know to get tested, nor did uh, your family, nor did even the medical professionals. Well, there's a dispute on whether or not the medical professionals knew or not. And there um, there were multiple surgeries and stuff up to the age of 15 where it could have been caught. And nobody ever brought up the let's test him for that. I would have never thought to. There's, like, this is a kid who's got all these medical conditions. Like, HIV would have been, or and sexually, uh, what's viewed primarily as a sexually transmitted infection would not have crossed my mind to test for a kid. And, I mean, that's just me personally, but I do believe that if there's a lot of surgeries and things going on... That... Well, you got to remember that right after I was in the hospital, it was about... I think um, a month, maybe even shorter than that later, 
the CDC released the uh, blood screener test for HIV for blood banks. So when that was released, the blood banks dumped every bit of blood they had and started over brand new and started testing every bit of blood that came in to make sure this didn't happen. And then right after that, Ryan White, I don't know if you're familiar with that story. He was a hemophiliac that contracted it through a blood transfusion. And he was kept out of school and churches and ostracized like crazy in the early 90s. So it was known in the early 90s that blood banks were a problem and did have issues, but I was never put into a look-back program like I should have been. What's that program? And all hospitals across the country were supposed to institute a look-back program for anybody that had been given blood between, I can't remember the years, but I think it was 78 to like 88 was supposed to be brought back and tested. And my name never landed on a list to go back. Wow. So how was your support? You know, you, you said you were with your grandfather and your parents at the time of your diagnosis and you had all these pills to take. What was their involvement with you after having been diagnosed with AIDS? Uh, every day was a discussion about meds. I hated being <laughs> to the point like I just I got where I didn't have to have a watch or have a clock on the wall. Tell me what time it was. Like I just automatically knew my body would let me know, like, you're supposed to be doing something right now. Mm -hmm. And that's how, you know, it, it was it was crazy because that routine became such a big part of my life. I knew every day when 7 a.m. was. I would wake up at 6.45 to get ready to go take the meds. And then I knew when noon was. I knew it became second nature. I kind of turned it into a video game because when I was going to have blood work done, I was seeing the numbers of T cells go up and the virus, the viral load go down. So I turned it like in my mind, I was playing a real life version of Dr. Mario. Oh. <laughs> inside my own body. So the discussions were always about meds. There was no gloves. You weren't handled any differently in your household, were you? Oh, no. Because, I, I mean, for 16 years, like, nobody knew. Hmm. And I was a normal kid. I got scraped and bumped and bled all the time. I was climbing trees. I thought I was a Ninja Turtle when I was growing <laughs> up. All the normal kid stuff I went through and nobody ever used any extra precaution mm -hmm. around me and nobody else in the family has the virus. Nobody contracted it from me. Are you an only child? No, I have a younger sister. Okay. You're 16. How old was she at the time? She was 13. Okay. So the whole family was aware of what was going on. Did anyone begin to treat you differently, family or friends? A couple of friends did, but not very many. I had more friends that would get in pretty heated discussions defending me than there were people, you know, coming after me. 
so that was good to have, but also kind of rough to go through because you don't want to be the friend that everybody's got to step up and got to defend, especially with that topic. And I'm in the southeast, so there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to the virus. While we're there, we might as well bring it up. AIDS, at this point in time, wasn't that known as the gay disease? Like, you got it from having gay sex? Yes, and to this day, there's still a majority of people that think of it that way. And And you're in the south. I'm not gay. And I, I didn't get it in a sexual interaction. I'm everything that you would never think about the virus. Mm-hmm. Especially the way you got it. So what are some other things with the stigma? Because that's the only thing that I'm aware of as far as people who are living with AIDS. Well, let me rephrase that. AIDS is a disease that you get as a gay man. That's what I've known from the stigma. Is there anything else associated with that? That's a majority of the stigma is that it's a gay disease. There's a lot of people that AIDS is a one disease that people feel free to joke about and make jokes about. And Twitter will clearly show you that. Mm-hmm. If you just go and blanket search the word AIDS, there's a majority of jokes. And that's always something to overcome is to get people to realize this is real. It still happens to people every day, and it's happening to younger and younger people. The majority of cases in the last 10 years have been from 13 to age 24. I mean, it's terrifying to think that somebody that young is contracting this virus because they're not educated about it. They don't know about it. There's a lot of emphasis on don't get pregnant, but there's so many other things that can really disrupt your life, and nobody wants to talk about those. It's an uncomfortable, I don't get why a baby is a comfortable conversation, but STIs are not. And that's another thing that we're working on here is our perception of sex as a society that no one wants to talk about it, but everybody wants to do it. It's almost inevitable that if you're sexually active, especially if you're having multiple partners, that this kind of a conversation needs to come up. Sexual health needs to come up. It is very likely statistically that at some point in your life, you will be exposed to some STI or someone who's living with an STI. And so it's best to be able to openly have these kinds of discussions of what our sexual health status is and that we continue to always be aware of what our sexual health status is. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I when I first got diagnosed, I had a really good friend of mine, and me and her would go out together all the time to different places. And one time we were out, and there was somebody near us, and we could hear them vocally talking about me and my health and my diagnosis. And she didn't know what to do at first she looked at me and I'm like just let it go don't worry about it and she grabbed my drink and slid it over to her and drank out of the same straw and these people (laughs) that look in their face they just got like how in the world and she turned around and said shut up it's not what you think it is it's not contracted like that and she leaned over and gave me a kiss right in front of them and they got up and walked out because they just I guess they had it in their mind, like it was floating in the air when I walked in the room. And I'm, 
it's not like that. And that's the bad thing about the South is there's so many people that their grandma told them this, and <laughs> I have to be the one to go. Well, grandma needs Google because yeah. uh, everything she told you is incorrect. I'm one of those people. I mean, I, I don't want to say I was raised in that kind of household, but the grandparents instilled certain beliefs in me that had to go challenge. Like as I grew up and went off on my own, went to college, lived in another city, I began to unlearn a lot of that programming and challenge it and determine for myself what was true, what was not true. That's something that unfortunately a very closed mindset person wouldn't be able to do. And it just takes getting out of that comfort zone and being around the very people that you're taught to dislike or you're taught to hate or you're taught to discriminate against. I can relate to that, man. And Having this conversation here alone is just, it's eye-opening to me. So you said that the girl that, or the lady that you were on a date with, that you'd go out with all the time, she drank out of your straw. She said, it's not like that. That's not how you get it. You have to have HIV and your T-cells have to drop below a certain number and then you get AIDS. So if someone's exposed to AIDS, do they get HIV? Well, you can't be um, exposed to AIDS AIDS is just a diagnosis. It's always HIV mm-hmm. that you will contract. And that's a big misconception. People think they can contract AIDS. I can't transmit that to you. That's a diagnosis outside of an HIV diagnosis because of blood work. Certain numbers would have to be in a certain place for you to say you have AIDS. Okay. And that's only going to happen if you're not getting tested and staying up on your own sexual health. Got it. So that's where people get confused is I can't give anybody AIDS. I can't. There's no possible way that will ever happen. Like, there was a big joke when Charlie Sheen got diagnosed about the mosquito. I don't know if you ever saw that. I I thought it was bullshit, so I didn't even bother. I mean, stuff like that is where people get the wrong idea about it. And it's also what breeds a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. One thing I have come to understand is... The people that will tell the dumb jokes and the make fun of it are the ones that are the most afraid of it. Yeah. They're the ones I can go to and say, well, when was the last time you got tested? You need to find out in 10 minutes. No, no, I don't want to. I don't need to. Yeah, That's what it is. I'm busy. I'm this <laughs> and that. It drives me crazy because I'm like, then stop making a joke. Mm-hmm. Like, don't speak on something you're ignorant of inside your own body. Are AIDS and HIV treated the same way? I believe they are. I mean, there's not much of a difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, an AIDS diagnosis just means you are in a worse medical situation. Okay. That's all that means. It's like stages of cancer, basically. Okay. the way I've always had to view that. But you have HIV and then you have what's HIV 1, 2, 3, and then AIDS. That goes by the amount of the virus in your blood and the amount of T-cells. Okay. So the medication that you take, it makes you undetectable. And when your viral load is at undetectable, that means you cannot transmit the virus 
sexually, but does that also mean you can't transmit the virus through a blood transfusion? I am not sure on that. I have not read anything with that, mm-hmm. but I um, I don't think they would take my blood just because it would show HIV in it anyway. Even trace amounts, undetectable means there's still trace amounts of the virus. Got it. So it could, if it got into, if somebody else got that blood transfusion, it could get in their body and start replicating got like it. it with anybody else. How old are you now? 33. So you've lived for 17 years, knowing, uh-huh. <laughs> knowingly yeah. 17 plus years with AIDS. And another misconception that we have is that if you get AIDS, you die. Like HIV turns to AIDS and then you die. That was my first thought when I was diagnosed was, um, this is the end. So these past 17 years for me is extra time. It's yeah. the way I look at it. Bonus time, it's, eh? <laughs> yeah. When you began to look at it that way, like how are you living your life now? Or even during those 17 years, I completely skipped over that. We were supposed to go back to it. I spend a lot of time with family. I'm really close with my family. My 20s were extremely crazy. (laughs) On the weekends, I left those years, those moments to myself, and they got pretty wild. Ah, okay. What'd you do for work? The girl I was talking about earlier, when I got about... 19, 20 years old, she um, was sneaking me into a club with her, and uh, nobody said anything to me. They just let me go. I wasn't drinking. I was pretty much there to make sure she was okay. And um, this will actually explain to you what you laughed at earlier about the ringtone when you called me, <laughs> ring back tone. We were going to a karaoke club, and for a long time, I was scared to death of the karaoke, but I would not touch it. Well, one night, I finally got the courage up, and I grabbed the book, and I picked my song, and the club had just got wireless microphones. I told you how way back this was. That was new technology at that point. And then I sang Ice Ice Baby. And I didn't stand on the little stage. I ran all the way through the club and sang to everybody and was jumping on uh, tables and (laughs) just having a blast doing that. I did that, and it was right when camera phones had first come out. So I got recorded all over the club and did that, didn't think anything of it, went home. And this is also when everybody was making mixed CDs. Well, the CDs I was making were making it into the club, so the DJs kind of knew me. And they were shocked when I did karaoke for the first time. And that next weekend, I got a phone call from the owner of the club saying, it's packed in here and everybody is wondering where you're at. I said, why in the world is everybody wondering where I'm at? <laughs> He said, I saw a video, and he said, I went here, and you've got to be here and do that again. So that became my theme song. <laughs> Anybody that knows me in town, like, I, I don't do that Facebook post about name a song that reminds you of me. 
because everybody answered Ice Ice Baby <laughs> one time I did it. And I was like, somebody be more creative. <laughs> Uh, and that was uh, is that was that the birth of D-Rec? That was actually just that I I was called Little D at the time <laughs> when I was DJing and doing it. And yeah, I imagine you wanted to change I, that quickly. I went into work and um, a buddy of mine that's also a DJ just looked at me and he said D-Rec. And I told him, I said, I'm keeping that. <laughs> and he thought I was joking. And now that's on T-shirts and on wristbands. And he's like, I can't believe you took that one moment out of the night and created everything you have with it. And that's what I learned from DJ. And I was like, you can take the little moments and create something huge out of them. Definitely. Like, I've, I've had three engagements while I was DJing in nightclubs on my dance floors. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's about taking little moments and turn them into something big. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one thing I've learned over the past 17 years is it's not really about the big trips here or there. It's about the, the dumb little things that happened in between. It's the fact that I went to a hotel one time, me and a friend went out of town, and I brought a duffel bag, and she had three suitcases, and I walked up to the guy at the front desk to check in, and I said, I'm just staying the weekend, I'm not sure what she's planning, (laughs) and that guy to this day still sends me emails (laughs) talking about that. Little things, man, and even that little interaction, like you, you were able to impact that man to the extent where he's sending you emails later. Yeah, he still cracks up at that. He's like, I've never heard anybody say that. I said, well, I said, I really didn't know how long she intended on staying. I said, I was only there for the weekend. Uh, so dating hasn't been a real issue for you, has it? And it has been, but mostly it's usually due to a girl's family or her ignorant friends. Mm-hmm. And because I always end up having to be the educator in this situation, I also become the villain kind of in their eyes. And I'm a lot to have to explain to anybody's friends or family right off the bat. And then when I have to become the educator of it, it really puts me in a weird situation where you put people on one side or the other, and I've never really won that battle. So how does that conversation usually go? Like, what's the best way to have it? Well, with the girls, it's right off the bat. It's just a straight up, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. Like, in a majority of, if a girl does have interest in me, Girls are like 007 with long hair. <laughs> they, they know right they away. They smile on you like crazy before you ever even get a message or even know what's going on. So I've always known, like, all right, if a girl calls me or talks to me, they've seen something online about me because there's just so much out there about me already with podcasts and interviews and stuff in the local newspaper. But I still have to 
disclose the status directly. Do you have to make disclosures outside of potential sexual partners? No. Okay. No, just a normal social interaction, no. Okay, got but it. But normal social interactions, even in town, most people know about my help. And one guy, a buddy of mine, is a big guy like you, big muscle <laughs> guy. And I went one time to get blood work drawn. And he happened to be in the same lab getting blood work, and we ended up in the same room. They had two chairs in there, and it took five nurses to calm him down. He was afraid of needles, and I was sitting over there. I just threw my arm out like it was nothing, and all the nurses were going, why can't you be like him? And he's going, he does his crap all the time. Oh, that's one of those little moments, man. That's one of the ones you yeah. don't forget. And I still give him hell about that when I see him around town. I'm like, you can lift all the weights you want. Like, <laughs> let me bring a nurse in here. I've got a nurse in the parking lot, and he'll go hide. <laughs> just it's like just those little inside funny jokes. Mm-hmm. And, like it's the little things, like I was saying earlier. Like it really is the little moments that make life so much fun. Definitely. Like I saw him the other day, and he goes, there better not be a nurse around the corner. <laughs> I said, I didn't bring one today. Oh, man. Well, we've made it through everything that I wanted to cover. You have a book out. Yeah. Let's talk about that. The title of the book is Operation Direct, and I named it that because it's everything that ended up building Direct. <laughs> It's all the traumatic stuff, all the funny stuff. It's everything together that made me what I am today. And there's some great stories. Like, I'm a crazy patient for a doctor and a nurse to have. I've had some wild moments in hospitals. I've had, my grandfather is a retired Marine, and I would always call him when I was ready to get out of the hospital. And he would always give a nurse hell until I was discharged. So I've, I've learned, like, when in doubt, call the Marines and they'll get you out. <laughs> There's a lot of fun stories in the book. The book is uh, the introduction of it I wrote. and It's a lesson on survival through laughter. So it's a book I always tell people, like, when I go and speak and do different events and stuff, I always tell people, I want people to leave laughing with tears in their eyes. I'm not doing this for pity or for somebody to go, I feel bad for him. Don't feel bad for me. I've got 17 extra years. And counting. And and still going. Like, I'm having a blast. Mm -hmm. I have done everything. I got my dream job. I was a DJ and still am a DJ. And... When I got diagnosed, it was really difficult time, but it was also after I came out of the initial shock, I realized how freeing that was because I now had the ability to go after whatever I wanted and succeed or fail. It didn't really matter as long as I tried. Just go at it. Like, who was going to tell me not to go after a dream? 
And that's what I did. I was like, I want to try this VJing thing. And I ended up making it all the way to the largest club in the area. And I was packing that place every Friday and Saturday night with almost 700 people. It's about what's inside of you. It's not what's about in a medical chart. Medical chart is its own thing. It's not you. That's what I always try to leave people with is you still have a choice outside of whatever that medical chart says. You're not those words. You are not any of that. You make the decision to continue setting goals and laughing and smiling and having relationships and friendships and travel like nothing. I just, I got to a point in my mind where I don't let things stand in my way. And I've had big hurdles in the past 17 years. Like this year, like I got in, I found out my pacemaker was dying. And I'm now on my fifth pacemaker. I had that surgery back in February. And right after that, I had a nine-hour cardiac ablation procedure. So I've been rebuilt more times than I can count, pretty much. And my doctors call me the Terminator. So, I mean, I, I... I, everything about me is 80s underdog, like Karate Kid, Rocky, Terminator. Like, I, <laughs> I love that stuff. I feed off that stuff. And I watch those movies and stuff when I'm going through difficult times. I have my list of movies, my music, my... I have all that coping stuff set up, but it's just... And that's what it is about, is figuring out what you need to get you to tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, DJ D-Rec. How do people find this book? Um, you can go to my website, DerekCanis.com. There's a link on there. And I'll be sure to put that into the show notes as well. How can people get in contact with you? I'm from the website. You can message me there. You can book me for events. You can book D-Rex. They call me DJ. It's all there. I, I threw everything into one on the website because that's what it is. I'm just controlled chaos, really. <laughs> I love it. And then what are your social media handles if people want to get you uh, contact you there? And Instagram is uh, D-Rex Angels and Warriors, all one word. Uh, Twitter is DJ D-Rex 84 at, um, on Twitter. Um, Facebook is In the Stigma 912. And uh, you can just, it's all, all the links are on top of the uh, website. So it's very easy to find me on whatever social media you use or want to use or the Instagram account is filled with um, inspirational posts every day. I make sure to post different things that um, either inspirational or make you think or you know just kind of push you to push your own limits. It's all motivational stuff and that's what I've always tried to get through to everybody is that strength is not 
strength comes in many forms. Yeah. Because I've always been looked at. I'm five foot tall and 105 pounds. I'm the last person you would think of when you think of strength. But when you read my story and hear everything I've gone through, just everybody goes, that's unbelievable. Yep. So I want to leave us with a little bit of a positive note. Thank you, DJ D-Rack, for coming on the podcast, reaching out to me and sharing your story. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And uh, I'll leave you with one of my lines from the book that I actually stole from Terminator 2, which is, there is no fate, only what we make. So it's all a choice. Make it what you want it to be. Don't let anybody or anything define you. You make that choice. Absolutely. I 100% thought you were going to say, I'll be back. (laughs) I always say that to family on the way into surgeries. I made that (laughs) promise to my mom years ago. I'd always make it out. It may be bloody and it may look pretty rough, but I always do make it home. Awesome. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People featuring Derek Canis. I can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit, at H on my chest. If you like this episode, please go and check out Derek's website, which will be linked in the show notes. And tune in for the next episode. Till next time, stay positive.